Women's Fight Back, Winter Spring 2021, page 9. Can Biden Kill Off Trumpism? by Vicky Morris. In his first few hours as US President, Joe Biden put the US on the path to rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement and the World Health Organization stopped building the Mexico border wall, made mask-wearing mandatory on federal property, announced an end to the ban on trans people serving in the military, cancelled permits for the Keystone XL oil pipeline, strengthened the Deferred Action for Children Childhood Arrivals Programme, added gender-neutral pronoun options to the online White House contact form, and enacted a number of other measures that would gladden the heart of any liberal or leftist. With democratic control of the House of Representatives and a slim majority in the Senate, Biden's administration can do a lot of what it likes in the next four years, although he will need to work with Trump's engineered 6-3 to conservative to liberal majority in the Supreme Court. It marks a return to minimally competent, neoliberal bourgeois government. Can Biden's presidency go beyond that, and will it be enough to kill off Trumpism? It's sobering to think that the result of the presidential election, even after Trump's dire first term, was so close. Biden, 81,268,757, 51.3%, to Trump, 74,216,722, 46.9%. Turnout was 62% of the voting age population, higher than recent elections, but given that this election was posed in make-or-break terms by both sides, a substantial proportion of Americans still does not recognise itself in either of the mainstream parties. Who supports Trump? The forces of Trumpism and the movement he has allied with and fostered include evangelicals, xenophobes and those whose livelihoods have been disrupted by the decline of industry. Quote, As he accentuated divisions among Americans, Trump sowed a crazy quilt of these and other divergent groups by treating each of them differently. He won the support of more evangelicals by pushing the speedy approval of anti-abortion. Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. For xenophobes, he continued to blame COVID-19 on China and refused to condemn the white supremacist Proud Boys until severely criticised. For those hurt by the shrinking industrial economy, he prioritised the economy over fighting the pandemic. Close quote. Ron Stagg, The Conversation, 15th November 2020. What will it take for the Democratic Party to win over those Trump voters or those apathetic non-voters? And a more substantial question, is a strengthened Democratic Party the way out of America's grossly unequal society? Subhead, Divided Politics, Unequal Society 
The COVID-19 crisis has exposed and exacerbated the glaring inequalities in US society, riven as it is along lines of race and class. A few recent statistics illustrate the problem. The US stands 11th in the world for COVID-19 death rate, in brackets the UK 6th, and people of colour are overrepresented among the 419,000 people who have died. By late 2020, stoked by the pandemic, unemployment stood at 13.2% for black people, 11.2% for Latinos and 7.9% for white people. Yet, in the midst of all this suffering, during the pandemic, 651 billionaires have gained more than $1 trillion in additional wealth. Like all competent governments worldwide, the US government is currently spending vast amounts of money shoring up the economy and providing a public safety net during the pandemic. Biden is now pressing Congress to pass a $1.9 trillion pandemic relief package to add to the $900 billion approved already under Trump. But what will happen once the pandemic recedes? And who will be asked to pay back the extra debt? Will it be the rich or the poor and middle class? Biden is in the centre in terms of the politics of the pro-business Democratic Party and he was vice president to Barack Obama during his underwhelming presidency that failed to deliver on its promise of great change. Yes, we can, but no, we didn't. Biden will not steer democratic government to the left and will enact no substantial political or social reforms to address US inequality in the longer term. And what of Vice President Kamala Harris? If Biden does not run for a second term, Harris would be in a good position to be the Democratic presidential candidate in 2024. But she is not on the left of the Democratic Party and critics say that in her law career, including as California Attorney General, she was not, as she claims to have been, a progressive prosecutor. The fanfare around her promotion to the highest office held by any woman or woman of colour says more about the poor state of women's and black people's representation in the US than it does about Harris as a feminist icon. What is the threat? The storming of the Capitol on the 6th of January shocked most Americans, Republican Party supporters included, and many feared this was the start of an insurrectionary wave. But the many threatened demonstrations on the day of Biden's inauguration didn't happen. The organisers seem to have been deterred by arrests of those taking part in the 6th of January events and the likelihood that state capitals would be heavily guarded, as the US Capitol was for Inauguration Day itself. Has the far-right threat been exaggerated? Is the US about to fall to fascism? No, on both counts. But Trump's four years in office massively emboldened the far right, and Trump has given them respectability. They now appear as the out-there wing of the conservative coalition, but no longer beyond the pale. Many Republican Party politicians think so too, 
as they refused to join in condemnation of Trump in the aftermath of 6th January for fear of alienating the Trumpist electorate. Trumpism continues to be a substantial force in the Republican Party. If Biden's presidency fails to deliver to his voters and alienates still more of those attracted to Trumpism, the 2024 election could see another far-right Republican return to the White House in a context where the far-right is becoming more organised and emboldened. Moreover, the COVID-19 crisis makes a Biden failure and growing political disenchantment harder to avoid. The left. The main socialist organisation, the Democratic Socialists of America, DSA, grew dramatically around Bernie Sanders' bids for the Democratic presidential nomination in 2016 and 2020. It went from around 5,000 in 2015 to 66,000 today. A number of its members are high-profile members of the House of Representatives, elected on the Democratic ticket, including Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Rashida Taleb. The DSA was torn during the 2020 election. They did not officially endorse Biden, but many of their members criticised this and campaigned for Biden in order to stop Trump, while the trade union movement overwhelmingly backed Biden. The AWL supported a third candidate in the presidential election, Howie Hawkins. There is a substantial force to the left of Biden. Trade unionists and leftists and campaigners for equal rights for all Americans, such as the Black Lives Matter movement, will need to step up their campaigns and struggles to ensure that Trumpism does not bounce back from Trump's defeat. They must keep campaigning on the social issues that can win part of Trump's base to an orientation to the labour movement, as well as represent those working-class Americans who do not see themselves reflected in the political system. They must build an independent poll to the pro-business machine politics of the Democratic Party, which offers US workers little genuine hope for the future. Page 10. Solidarity with the Uyghur people. The Uyghurs, a majority Muslim people who mostly live in East Turkestan, are facing persecution and genocide at the hands of the Chinese state. More than a million people are interned in camps where torture, abuse and rape are reported to be taking place. China's propaganda has stepped up following a series of news stories internationally about their treatment of the Uyghur population. State media recently released a series of short films subtitled in English, titled Embracing a New Life, featuring Uyghur women narrating in Mandarin Chinese their, in uh, quotation marks, empowering experiences after, quotation marks, re-education. According to a, a report last year, women have been involuntarily fitted with intrauterine contraceptives or coerced into receiving sterilization surgeries, even where they had fewer than the permitted two children. Government documents showed that women in some rural minority communities in the region 
have received frequent mandatory gynaecological exams and bi-monthly pregnancy tests from local health officials. The Chinese state is looking to portray its attempted eugenics campaign as liberation from above for women trapped in religious communities in Xinjiang. This is state propaganda for international audiences intended to chime with much of the Western propaganda around Islam and the war on terror. We do not trust the Chinese state to bring women's liberation to a minority it is attempting to destroy. Get involved with the Uyghur Solidarity Campaign. www.uyghursolidarityuk.org spelled U-Y-G-H-U-R-S-O-L-I-D-A-R-I-T-Y-U-K dot O-R-G And on Twitter, www.twitter.com slash campaign Uyghur spelled C-A-M-P-A-I-G-N-U-Y-G-H-U-R Page 10. Free No Deep Core. Women have been at the forefront of resistance to India's Hindu nationalist regime and women activists have been targeted for repression. In its most recent phase, Indian farmers' protest movement against the Modi government's neoliberal agricultural reforms has involved women in large numbers. Two high-profile cases of repression against young women in the movement have dramatised the harsh repression against it. The Western media has given quite a bit of attention to Disha Ravi, a 21-year-old climate activist, arrested on 13th February in connection with Greta Thunberg's tweeting in support of the farmers. Ravi's grandparents were farmers, and she has talked about the impact of seeing them struggle with the effects of climate change. Arrest warrants are now out for two other climate activists, Nikita Yakob and Shantanu Muluk. We must stand in solidarity with these comrades and demand the dropping of charges against them. But another case receiving less attention internationally is arguably even more important. 23-year-old Labour activist Nodeep Kaur, a member of the Mazdor Adhikar Sangatan, Association for the Empowerment of Labourers Union, was arrested on the 12th of January and she has been denied bail. Her sister Rajvir says she has been tortured and sexually assaulted in jail. From a poor Dalit, lowest, most oppressed caste, Sikh background in Punjab. Until December last year, Kaur worked in a bulb-making factory in Haryana, on the border with the Delhi region. When she decided to join the protests, she was fired without pay. In and alongside the farmer's struggle, she has been central to a campaign raising workers' issues, including non-payment of salaries and harassment by employers. Kaur is accused of multiple crimes, including attempted murder, assault, rioting, intimidation, trespass and extortion, 
because of her role leading workers' protests against employers. In fact, it was the employers' thugs who used intimidation and violence against the workers. India's campaign against state repression, a student union-led network, has said, quote, The targeting of a young Dalit woman who dared to raise her voice for the rightful demands of the workers has been met with the most cruel misogynistic barbarity of the men in uniform who have resorted to sexual violence. The impunity of the police stands firmly on a Brahmanical patriarchal Hindutva ground. Rajvir quotes No Deep as saying, quote, If farmers and labourers unite, the government is in trouble. End quote. There are many, many other cases of women activists suffering repression in India under the Hindu nationalist regime. Workers' movement organiser and lawyer Sudhar Bharadvaj has been in prison for over 900 days without trial. Women organised mass gatherings and rallies during the 2019 struggle against Modi's anti-Muslim changes to citizenship laws and a number of Delhi activists from Pinjra Todd, Break the Cage, a feminist collective that organised solidarity, are also being held. Release our sisters and brothers and drop all charges. Page 11. Feminism Interrupted. A write-up by Arielle Bennett Lovell. This write-up follows a discussion in Workers' Liberties Socialist Feminist Reading Group. Usually held in South London, the monthly reading group has been held online during the pandemic. To get involved, write to womensfightback at workersliberty.org. Feminism Interrupted is the second book from Lola Olafemi, co-author of A Fly Girl's Guide to University. A cross between an introductory text and manifesto, the book is a collection of ten essays covering topics from trans rights and Islamophobic misogyny to food and art. The first chapter, Know Your History, reflects on a rich history of black British feminist organising. Emerging from the black power movement from the 1970s onwards, Brixton Black Women's Group and the Organisation of Women of African and Asian Descent Umbrella Group took an explicitly internationalist and intersectional approach to their work long before the term was coined in 1989. Both groups serve as models for building power through cultural mediums such as zines alongside establishing community schools and organising in tenants' campaigns. Olofemi, however, nearly throws away one of the most important points of this chapter towards its end. By 1981 to 86, activists and groups were subsumed into the structures of the then Greater London Council led by Ken Livingstone. The professionalisation of their activism divorced them from the communities they were organising and ultimately neutralised them. This is not interrogated further in the chapter, 
or even framed as a warning against state co-option, and so the impact of this cautionary tale is mostly lost. In three chapters in particular, Olafemi adopts an anti-state and anti-carceral perspective, the sexist state, the fight for reproductive justice, and the answer to sexual violence is not more prisons. Liberal feminism's reliance on state protection and the legal system to advance women's rights is, she argues, entirely inadequate. The first of these chapters features interviews with members of the direct action group Sisters Uncut, which uses attention-grabbing stunts to protest against police and wider state violence. Olafemi recounts their storming of the BAFTA's red carpet in 2018 to protest against Theresa May's domestic violence bill, and the time in 2015 that they turned Trafalgar Square's fountains red to protest against the closure of women's refuges. There is a clear message running through the chapter that feminists must look beyond the state and that achieving real progress needs bold challenges from outside as well as within. The fight for reproductive justice explores the difference between legislative rights and actual justice through the lens of Repeal the Eighth, a successful but flawed campaign to repeal the ban on abortions in Ireland. The chapter begins by noting that historical campaigns in favour of birth control and abortion access often cited population control as a benefit, specifically referencing marginalised groups when doing so, leading to a general mistrust of the reproductive rights movement by people of colour. Further, Olafemi examines the aftermath of Repeal the Eighth, along with other abortion rights campaigns in the UK and US, demonstrating that changes in the law do not automatically result in equal access to abortions. People still face healthcare barriers from anti-migrant policies and extraneous requirements for medical advice to pro-life protests outside clinics, underlining that there is a limit to the impact changing a single law can have on the system. The central argument here is that the focus on abortion rights from mainstream feminism can lead to the sidelining of broader healthcare issues for people of colour and the difficulties that many people still have in accessing reproductive healthcare. The chapter concludes by emphasising the urgent need for reproductive justice, which goes beyond campaigning for legislation instead focusing on systemic change, an argument echoed in a later chapter, the answer to sexual violence is not more prisons. Olofemi is perhaps her strongest when she discusses the struggles facing marginalised groups in Trans Misogyny, Who Wins? The Saviour Complex, Muslim Women and Gendered Islamophobia and Complicating Consent, how to support sex workers. The last of these distills most of its arguments for decriminalising sex work from Molly Smith and Juno Mack's excellent Revolting Prostitutes of 2018, but builds a more specific critique of the individualistic takes on sexual consent 
promoted in mainstream feminism alongside. As Ella Famey argues, focusing solely on teaching men to interpret consent as enthusiastic, verbal and sober ignores the grey areas of power dynamics and material conditions that can impact on a person's ability to say no in sexual interactions. In Transmisogyny, Olofemi presents a more accessible interpretation of Judith Butler's seminal Gender Trouble, arguing that both sex and gender are socially constructed rather than predetermined, although non-Western perspectives on gender are only briefly mentioned. Her subsequent argument that it is the violence that people coded as women by society face that defines our experience of our world rather than biology and that it is this umbrella that critical feminism should use is worth more debate than it is afforded in the book. The rest of the chapter is spent refuting the moral panic generated by trans-exclusionary radical feminists in the national media and exhorting critical feminists to reject the artificial dichotomy between cis and trans women that gender-critical activists are attempting to create. If you're a supporter of trans rights and find liberal ponderings on whether you can be a feminist in high heels, irritating, this is the chapter for you. Chapters looking at more abstract topics such as art and solidarity are more dense to chew through than those examining specific situations or issues. In Art for Art's Sake, Olofemi seems undecided, arguing that activist art can and should be used to reflect struggles and enhance campaigns, juxtaposed against the statement that, quote, if we want art that reflects the true complexity of our lives and the range of human emotion, then we must, we must eradicate the harmful conditions in which we live, end quote. She seems to suggest that art made in response to struggles and harm somehow does not reflect the true complexity of our lives, and comes across as utopian in an outlook. Her strongest argument in this chapter is that the issue of who gets to make art is as, as important to feminism as the art itself, and that everyone should have access to creative outlets regardless of background or class. Although many of the arguments Olofemi makes throughout this book will resonate with socialist feminists, she avoids using this label in Feminism Interrupted, instead preferring the term critical feminism, loosely defined as, quote, different feminisms in conversation with each other, end quote. However, much of the book comes across as a conversation between Olofemi and liberal feminism exclusively. Adding critiques or analysis of other feminist schools of thought would have enriched the text and perhaps offered an insight into why she rejects established labels for her views. Does it matter that she doesn't use the term socialist to describe herself? Given her insistence in the introduction that, quote, there are no pre-given solutions, end quote, offered by feminism, 
It's perhaps unsurprising she rejects most standard classifications for her viewpoint. And if we recognise and agree with her arguments where they matter most, on rejecting individualistic liberal corporate feminism, centering marginalised voices and liberating the working class from the tyranny of the wage system, then the specific terms she uses for herself are perhaps less important. There are two major criticisms to be levelled at the book as a whole, although different people will no doubt disagree with different arguments and specific points within its chapters. The first is that while Olafemi invites the reader to imagine a different vision of the world remade along feminist principles, the text is light on routes to reach it. Despite the emphasis on feminism as a practical philosophy throughout the book, suggestions for practical actions are limited to those offered up as examples from direct action groups or other individuals, which are often presented with little comment on their success or how to build on them. Secondly, it's not entirely clear who this book is for. Feminism Interrupted is the length of an introductory text, but the language and arguments it uses at points are too academic to be aimed at a casual audience. This makes it unexpectedly heavy going for readers who haven't experienced this style of writing before. Overall, Feminism Interrupted presents an interesting and modern feminist distillation of a spectrum of topics from the familiar to the slightly more out there. For newer feminist readers, the book offers a solid jumping-off point for more in-depth explorations of the topics with extensive resources listed at the back of the book. More experienced readers will appreciate the voices of different artists and activists from interviews that are sprinkled throughout the chapters and which adds an extra dimension to arguments they will have likely heard before. For everyone, the book's pervading sense of optimism and its rallying cry that a better, more equitable future can be imagined might be just what you need to brighten up a long, gloomy winter lockdown. Lola Olafemi, Feminism Interrupted, Disrupting Power, is from Pluto Press, 2020. Page 12 to 13. The Paris Commune and the Union des Femmes by Kelly Rogers. 2021 marks the 150th anniversary of the Paris Commune, the moment that the working class seized political power for the first time and held it for 72 days. Thousands of women took part in the events of the Commune and, against the backdrop of deep-rooted sexism, championed a revolutionary vision for the transformation of working-class women's lives. Paris under siege Life was hard for women in Paris in the mid-19th century. They worked long hours in back-breaking jobs and, with onerous domestic chores and squalid overcrowded housing, home life was little better. The majority of Parisian women were illiterate, having received little or no formal education other than catechism lessons. 
after the Second Empire was toppled on the 4th of September 1870, Paris was placed under siege by the Prussian army. The siege would last until the provisional government surrendered at the end of January 1871. Severe hardship saw people come together to organise community welfare and mutual aid initiatives and cooperative workshops. A new sense of solidarity and political militancy was forged. Revolutionary clubs across every arrondissement in Paris would host nightly meetings at which radical men and women, veterans of the 1848 revolutions, young workers from the Paris section of the First International and political refugees would debate political and economic issues, including women's labour and ways of winning higher pay for women workers. Meetings were exciting and passionate. Some topics were censored under the siege, criticism of the emperor, for example, and considerable suspense was created by speakers who might at any moment cross into forbidden territory, causing the meetings to be shut down amidst roars of opposition. Many of the women at the forefront of the commune can be found in the speakers' records of these meetings. Seizing power Women played a critical role in the events of the Commune right from the first moment of resistance. On the morning of 18th of March, when the Versailles troops arrived in Montmartre to take control of Paris, it was women who moved first. According to the account of prominent Communard Louise Michel, quote, all the women were there. The general gave the order to fire. We said to soldiers, will you shoot at us? We will not shoot at the people. Thereafter, women were at the heart of the struggle. Women ambulancières helping the wounded, sewing uniforms, writing for the commune press, educating the children in newly secularized schools, and defending the city of Paris on the barricades and on gunboats along the Seine. Despite the great efforts and sacrifices of women communards, the political culture of the time was, of course, deeply sexist. Disappointingly, even under the Commune's revolutionary government, women were not granted the right to vote in elections or stand as candidates. The Commune did, however, give women some positions of responsibility, appointing them to administer welfare institutions, sending them on liaison missions to provincial cities, and including them on commissions to reform education. The Union des Femmes, Women's Union On the 11th of April 1871, two weeks after the inauguration of the Commune, the Journal Officiel published a front-page appeal by Un groupe des citoyennes for the women of Paris to attend a meeting that evening with the aim of forming a women's movement for the defence of Paris. This founding movement set up committees in most of the arrondissements of Paris to recruit volunteers for nursing and canteen work and for the construction and de defence of barricades. It elected a provisional central committee to be replaced by a committee composed of delegates from arrondissement committees. Members agreed to recognise the moral authority 
of the Union's Central Committee and follow the instructions of their arrondissement committees, making the Union uncharacteristically democratic centralist for an organisation of the period. Committee members could be easily recalled. The Union grew rapidly and quickly, becoming the Commune's largest and most effective organisation, as well as in functioning, in effect, as the first women's section of the International. Its provisional council was composed of seven women, six of them workers. Elizabeth Dmitriev, 20-year-old socialist and co-founder of the Russian section of the International, had spent the three months immediately preceding the Commune in London, in near-daily discussions with Marx in his study, on the topic of the traditional Russian rural organisations. In March, she was dispatched to Paris as Russian envoy to the Paris Commune. Natalie Lamel earned her living as a stitcher in the bookbinding trade. She was elected to the Bookbinders Union's Strike Committee during the 1864 and 1865 strikes, and as a union militant she fought for equal pay between men and women. By the time the Commune came to power, she was already a seasoned organiser although best known for running La Marmite, a cooperative restaurant and meeting place set up a few years earlier by the Paris International. There would later be another La Marmite restaurant off Tottenham Court Road in London, established by exiled communards, which would serve as a hub for revolutionaries in London in the late 19th century. Sadly, little is known about the other five co-founders of the Women's Union. Whilst devoting much of its energy to aiding immediate combat requirements, the Women's Union had an ambitious political vision, seeking a full reorganisation of women's labour and an end to gender-based economic inequality and sex discrimination. In its founding address, the Union described sex discrimination as a tool used by the ruling class to maintain power and divide the working class. The address goes on to say that women have not just a duty to defend the commune, but a right. It demanded a place in the revolutionary movement for the citoyenne of Paris. The union executives sought to form women-led worker cooperatives. It was hoped that these would emerge from initiatives by women workers themselves once the union had organised them into associations. The Union issued wall posters and notices in newspapers inviting women to meetings where, quote, it is hoped that the various women's occupations, such as needle trades, feather processing, artificial flowers, laundry, etc., will form unions, end quote. In May, the Union submitted two plans to the Commune's Executive Commission. The first proposed these women's cooperatives. The second called for the, quote, abolition of all competition between men and women workers, their interests being absolutely identical and their solidarity essential for the success of the definitive universal strike of labour against capital, end quote, or, in other words, equal pay for equal work. 
In the end, due to the pressures of a precarious military situation, the workshops that had been established were devoted to making munitions, sandbags and uniforms, and before any further plans could be rolled out, the commune was defeated. The vote. The women's union, along with other women in in the commune, had little interest in the right to vote, which had been a popular issue for women in 1848. Debates about the vote for women are strikingly absent from records of pre-commune club meetings, meetings held during the commune and speeches, declarations and memoirs of communal women. Aggravated hardship and unemployment undoubtedly shaped the focus of the union towards economic demands rather than the civic objectives that had had the support of several leaders of the union before the commune. But this disinterest also reflected a broader political perspective held by socialists in Paris at the time, that voting rights were a bourgeois distraction. Powell Mink, socialist and militant in the Women's Union, wrote in 1880 that, Universal suffrage is a double-edged weapon, and it is always the people who are wounded by it. The end. The commune lasted for only 72 days, from the 18th of March to the 21st of May 1871, before it was brought to a brutal end in La Semaine Sanglante, the Bloody Week. 20,000 communards and suspected sympathisers were executed. 8,000 were jailed or deported. Thousands of others fled into exile. Elizabeth Dmitriev was able to escape and fled back to Russia. Natalie Lamel was deported with Louise Michel to a penal colony in New Caledonia, where she stayed until she was granted amnesty in 1880. One of the other original founders of the Union des Femmes, Blanche Lefebvre, died on a barricade. The Paris Commune had significant limitations, perhaps most of all when it comes to women's equality. André Léo, official propagandist of the Commune and active member of the Women's Union, wrote on the 8th of May 1871, If a history of France since 1789 were to be written dealing only with the inconsistencies of revolutionary moments, the question of women would be the largest chapter, and it would show how these movements have always found the way to drive half their troops over to the enemy, troops who had asked for nothing more than to fight at their side. Nevertheless, Leo remained a loyal and active participant in the commune to the end. It's easy to see why. Despite its failings, the Commune brought thousands of working-class women into a world-historic struggle. These women, despite being denied positions of power in the Commune's executive, would be some of the best-organised militants of the Revolution. They were indispensable from beginning to end in the day-to-day running of the Commune, but, more than this, organised to transform the lives of working-class women. They weren't satisfied with piecemeal reforms. They were demanding a wholesale revolution 
with gender equality at its heart. Page 13. Cancel Culture and Trans Rights by Natalia Cassidy Much is said in the right-wing press about cancel culture, the phenomenon of people facing a public backlash for things that they have said or done in the past. Cancel culture, what it is and how it operates, is laid out capably and convincingly by left-wing YouTuber Natalie Wynne, known as ContraPoints, in her video Cancelling. In this, she lays out the way in which cancel culture operates. A particular viewpoint or action, confirmed or alleged, by an individual or group is abstracted and essentialised into an often vague assertion about the character or nature of that individual or group. On that basis, they are deemed beyond the pale. They must be shunned and isolated. Others, deemed to be too close, are then at risk of isolation themselves if they do not join in disavowal of the cancelled party. Some on the left have denied that this phenomenon exists at all, instead claiming that what is happening is simply people experiencing consequences for their wrongdoing or harmful opinions. Cancel culture does exist, though it is not what the right-wing media continually rails against. Those in the Sunday Times that have regular column space to talk about how transgender women are inherently predatory are not being cancelled when they get criticised on Twitter. These commentators have huge reach, and sufficient social capital to resist any fallout that comes from backlash from left-wingers on social media. Instead, cancel culture affects much less powerful people. Many people have little to no knowledge of transphobia, what forms it takes, or how different strains of feminism have historically related to trans women. In the UK, we have a very vocal and quite prominent layer of left-wing feminists and trade unionists that believe, wrongly, that trans women possess, pose an existential threat to the safety and rights of women. Many people who know very little about the issues around trans rights, but who respect these feminists for the work they have done over the years in the women's movement and the labour movement, may well superficially take on these arguments. Many of these people have not hardened into fully crystallised transphobes. If the left is unwilling to engage with these people and simply disavows them because of their current views, then the left will be unable to make any progress past a small layer of self-righteous Twitter accounts. The ability for people to resist social ostracism inevitably rests upon their existing social links and position within the established order of things. Those who are most vulnerable to cancel culture are inevitably rank-and-file activists without a platform or voice, and not bourgeois journalists sounding off in their Sunday columns. See Cancelling by ContraPoints at www.youtube.com slash watch question mark v equals 
0, lowercase j, uppercase m, uppercase p, uppercase j, uppercase v, lowercase m, uppercase x, lowercase x, uppercase v, 8.